This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. That's part of the trailer for the documentary The Social Dilemma on Netflix. The film outlines how big tech companies are using our own inborn behavior, the way our brain works, to manipulate us. We've heard for years how technology is addictive, but this doc dives deep into the industry and our brains to reveal that we're not the consumers, but we're the product. Once upon a time, Tristan Harris was working for Google, realized what was happening, left big tech, and now works against it. He's the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology, and he was featured in The Social Dilemma. Tristan, welcome to Reset. Really delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. The Social Dilemma, I mean, it's the name of this documentary, but it's also something that uh, the tech companies and the tech world knows well. What is The Social Dilemma? There's 3 billion people who use these platforms, whether it's Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, etc. We are all jacked into an infrastructure that is inhumane and doesn't have our best interests at heart. So The Social Dilemma is that we're forced to use platforms that are contaminated or toxic for both our mental health and the public Uh, civic and democracy health uh, writ large. That's the the dilemma, is that we don't have another alternative. We are infused with with these systems that are causing harm. Right. And when you say contaminated, that that can go in so many different directions. Uh, One of the issues, like I mentioned in the lead, is just this idea of our behavior. At the end of the day, we think we might, you know, might just be addictive uh, qualities or, or dopamine rushes, but this goes way beyond that. Let me give you an example. It's very concrete for for listeners. You know, we often talk about social media being addictive, but that has a lot of different definitions. What's more important is do the people, the thousand engineers and the supercomputers behind that glass screen of yours, do they have our best interests at heart or are they designing to keep our attention because that's their business model? I mean, how much have you paid for your TikTok account or Facebook account Mm -hmm. in the last month? Well, nothing. Well, how are they worth more than $500 billion? because they sell our attention. We are the product that's being sold. And when they compete for our attention, that turns into what we've called the race to the bottom of the brainstem for who can go lower into our lizard brain, into our instincts, into our emotions to get us. So here's a concrete example. When TikTok was was competing for, for kids' attention, right? What they had to do was say, could we offer people more social approval, more dopamine hits, more, more sense of vanity or attention from others than Instagram. So imagine you post a video on Instagram, it gets on average 100 views, five likes, and one comment. Well, what TikTok's trying to do is say, well, what if we could give you a thousand views and, you know, a hundred likes and 10 comments? That would be a lot more attention and social approval. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they designed to do. It's almost like injecting 
a post with more social growth hormone, just like we inject cows with growth hormone to get more milk out of them, they're injecting us with more inflated false social approval and false attention from others to make us feel like we're getting that, that hit. But obviously it leaves us more empty on the inside and none of it's being designed by child psychologists who have our best interests at heart. And I think one of the most powerful points in the film is that many of the people who built these products don't let their own kids touch uh, social media. And I say this again with a very grounded perspective as a former technologist and design ethicist at Google, um, where you know I, I am pro-technology. This is not about vilifying all technology. This is about a specific business model that has kind of warped our collective psyche into a madness that, that has really uh, made us confused about who we really are. And I want to get into your story, too, because as you just mentioned, I mean, you got it. You were uh, a at Google, and, and you had aspirations to, to be a big part of, uh, of big tech and, and Silicon Valley. When was it at the moment where you realized this was happening and said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not cool with this? I was at Google in, back in 2013 and started seeing that more and more of my friends, uh, who I should mention, uh, you know, I went to college at Stanford with the founders of Instagram. We were actually part of a lab called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, where we studied how can technology be designed in a way that's persuasive, that can get us to do things, feel things, change our habits, our attitudes, our beliefs. And it was thought of that for good. So I was actually project partners with the founder of Instagram, Mike Krieger, and we built something called Send the Sunshine, which is about persuading friends to cheer each other up when one friend might be feeling depressed. So you can use these things for good. But I was seeing in 2013 more and more of my friends who got into the tech industry to make a positive social difference that they would get kind of sucked into this venture capital race for addiction and growth, that who could build the most addictive, viral, sticky products, and that that race was not uh, to the best benefit of society. And so I made this presentation within Google saying, you know, never before in history have 50 designers shaped what 2 billion people are going to think, feel, and believe on a daily basis from the notifications to those feeds that you wake up to. Mm -hmm. And it went viral. And, and I tried to change things from the inside, naively, frankly, uh, for two years, and then left to try to see, you know, how can we make a public conversation and change this from the outside? And I think this film which was released in 190 countries and in 30 languages, and I think beat records on Netflix for the entire month of September for a documentary, has really shown us that I think there's a global resonance to this. Everyone knows that this is what's happening. I think it's just giving some, some words to something that everyone's already feeling. As we talk about behavior, and, and this is the part I think that differs the social dilemma from other documentaries and other news reports about what social media is doing to us, not just as a society, but us as an individual, it may be a competition. When you say the word competition to get the, our attention, that's one thing. We'll, we'll accept the fact that people are competing to get at us. But it's another to when you talk about persuasive technology and getting to a point where the competition is rigged in the way that they know what moves human psychology. They know what moves human behavior. And so they're able to, with their supercomputers and the engineers behind the screen, modify our behavior. It's not that we're choosing. They're choosing for us. That's right. You know, as a kid, as I say in the film, um, I was a magician as a kid. And um, magic is all about asymmetric knowledge, that the magician knows something about your mind that you don't know about your own mind. That's what literally makes the trick work. If you knew about the thing in your mind that I am a magician as I'm exploiting, then the trick wouldn't work. So the premise of technology and all the things that have gone wrong, uh, as we described in the film, is we were all looking out for the moment when, when AI and you know, technology and artificial intelligence would be smarter than humans. That's when it takes our job. That's when it outcompetes human strengths. But we missed the much earlier point 
when technology doesn't overwhelm our strengths, but it undermines our weaknesses. And that's what's going on. Every place that we're feeling addicted, distracted, polarized, disinformed, conspiracy thinking, these are all places where technology is manipulating our, our weaknesses. I mean, take something like conspiracy thinking. The best predictor of whether you'll believe in a new conspiracy is whether or not you already believe in one conspiracy. And we know that from examples like YouTube's recommendation system, they recommended Alex Jones' InfoWars videos 15 billion times, which is more than the combined traffic of the New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, Guardian, BBC combined. Um, it recommended flat earth conspiracies hundreds of millions of times. And when I say this, I want to make sure I'm acknowledging that some conspiracies are true and real, COINTELPRO, MKUltra, things like this. But if you have a society in which the default broadcasting is paranoia you know, and cynicism, uh, we, it, there's actually a study on our, on our website uh, that we reference that it only takes two minutes of exposure to conspiracy videos to reduce pro-social attitudes, to make people feel um, less trusting of everything around them. Um, and so I think that's what's actually happened to our society. And I think this film is giving families who may have lost different family members to various rabbit holes, whether it's on the left or the right, uh, to have common ground again. We even heard from one person who said, you know, instead of watching the presidential debates, which were really painful, they found it more helpful to spend those 90 minutes watching The Social Dilemma to be able to talk to a family member that they weren't able to talk to anymore because of the, the fragmentation and division caused by these platforms. That's at least hopeful to me is that this can create some common ground about the breakdown of our of our. Yeah, platform. because that's a big part of this, too. When, when you talk about the algorithms and, and, and the fact that uh, I'm, I'm living in a bubble and you're living in a bubble and, and Mike on the other side of the glass is living in a bubble, we're all being fed what the algorithms and what the supercomputers think we want. And because of that, That's because right. of our clicks, because of our light, like in the clip at the top, it's recording everything we're doing. There's always division in our society, but this is, this is a different kind of division in which it makes money off of this. That's right. Yeah, it's so important people get this. And it's sort of like, you know, let's, let's acknowledge there is division in society before social media. And there was conspiracy thinking and there was, you know, hatred in society before social media. But these things are like amplifiers. You know, the, the social media companies want to claim that they're holding up a mirror to society. Hey, you know, that's your racism in society. We're just showing that back to you in the mirror. That's your conspiracy thinking in society. We're just showing you back that back in the mirror. But it's not a mirror. It's more like a funhouse mirror with a feedback loop that gives us the most warped vision of society because it, it's rewarded on what gets the most outrage, the most clicks, and conspiracies get more clicks than boring truth. And uh, narcissism and attention-seeking gets more clicks than having people feel – having teenagers feel self-sufficient and, and alive on the inside. And I think for people to really just get the, the clear example of this, imagine that any one of these companies, Facebook or YouTube, every time you flick your finger – they have to calculate something to show you next, right? And they're not just calculating based on what will improve your life. They're calculating based on what will keep you there. So imagine two feeds. One, when you flick your finger, it shows you something that confirms your view of reality. It says, this is why you're right and the other side is wrong. So every time you flick your finger, you're right, you're right, you're right, the other side is wrong. Versus another feed where when you, every time you flick your finger, it says, here's something that challenges your view or expands your view of reality. It says maybe it's more nuanced than you think it is. Mm -hmm. Here's a counterexample. Between those two feeds, when you're flicking your finger, which one is better at keeping your attention? Right. Well, the, the one on the, the right. right. Affirms your view of, yep. Yeah, the one that affirms your view of reality. So what that means is you take this shared reality and you put it through this paper shredder 
where it just shreds us into each narrower and narrower uh, Truman shows, these, these different personalized program channels that make us feel constantly like we're right and the other side is wrong. And how can the other side be so stupid? Aren't they getting the same information that we're getting? But the answer is they're not getting the same information right. that Designed we're getting. That way. Right. Exactly. And I think the thing that people get after the film we're having people do is you watch the film with a family member and then you do a reality swap. You actually hand – you open up Facebook. Yep. That's what you use on two phones, and you hand the phone over to the other person and scroll through their feed for 10 minutes. And you start to see, oh, my God, I get why this person is thinking and feeling and angry about the things that they care about because this is the information that they've been getting. I will say this, Tristan. I, when, when I sat down to watch with my family, I had my 13-year-old son watch with me because I knew it was going to be uh, important to watch. While we were watching the film, the news broke that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. And uh, we took a stop in the, uh, in the, in the film to, to look at our social media feeds. And I noted, because we're right in the middle of the film, that every single post that was being fed to me was about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I counted it, 12 or 15. There was nothing else. It was, the, it was that yeah. Facebook had chosen or Instagram had chosen that this is what you want and this is what you want right now. It's not necessarily what everybody's posting. It's just what I get right now. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, similarly, when, when, when Trump got COVID, you know, each of us were fed into different uh, social media bubbles, and some, some of which were saying, oh, my God, we hope he gets better. And the other side saying, um, oh, this might be, this must be a conspiracy theory. Maybe he's faking it. Like, and so each of us are ending up with very different views of reality of even breaking news. And mm-hmm. I think, again, we've always had different views of reality, but it's really so much more than it was before. It's sort of like saying, if, if you've never seen an atomic bomb or a photo of an atomic bomb, and someone said, hey, we just blew up a bomb in Japan, and you'd say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. We've always had bombs, and this just sounds like a slightly bigger one. But the level of exponentiation, the exponential uh, magnitude of this division, of this polarization, of this outrage machine, it's turned each of us into yellow journalists, journalists who where we get incentivized and get more clicks and a feedback, the more salacious and exaggerated and, and more we assert uh, something without even knowing whether it's true. The end of the day, and this is where it kind of ties together to me to better understand when we talk about Russian uh, forces interfering in the election and using social media platforms. And everyone tries to figure out what that means, and they automatically go, well, these are fake news sites, and they're propagating these fake news sites. But is it possible, and this is what you kind of wrap your head around, that the Russian government could be advertisers? I mean, they just come in and say, this is how much money we're willing to give us. Turn the dial so our message gets out to more people. I mean, that's, that's the part that is startling to me when it comes to trying to understand what's happening with social media. Yeah, this is so critical. I'm glad you're bringing this up. You know, while we have been obsessed in this country with protecting our physical borders and our, you know, our passport controls and our wall in the South, we've left our digital borders wide open. An example of this, if Russia or China try to fly a plane or a missile into the United States, they'll be shot down by the Department of Defense. But if they try to fly a plane into the virtual digital United States, which is all happening through, say, Facebook, not by a missile, but by an algorithm that says, yeah, exactly which zip code or minority group do you want to target? We have a white-gloved hand that will bring you right there, and you can influence them. Um, and we've seen them actually doing this. You know, people talk a lot about Russia and the 2016 election. But um, one thing that's interesting is the director of this film, is a, uh, his two previous films were climate change films. Uh, he made the films Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral. And one of the things that we actually know Russia has also done is targeted anti-fracking activists in the United States and pro-environmental groups. Because if they can amplify the voices of anti-fracking groups, then we as a country are more dependent on buying 
foreign oil, which guess what? Mm. Where does that come from? Russia. So I think it's really important. This is not a partisan conversation. You know, it's very expensive for large geopolitical powers to wage kinetic or physical warfare on each other in a post-nuclear age. But now the warfare is digital. And we just released a podcast uh, today uh, on our podcast for uh, called Your Undivided Attention, where uh, we use the example that you can reach the entire country of Kenya with, a, with an advertising buy for less than the cost of a used car. So imagine for less than $10,000, I can basically influence an entire country with any message that I want without any government checks or regulations. And no rules or regulations, right. So if I'm Russia, in fact, one of the other studies that just came out a few months ago by the Stanford Cyber Policy Center is how Russia has actually been actively targeting more than a dozen countries on the African continent because it is so cheap. And again, if you compare the trillions of dollars that we're spending to renew our nuclear fleet, we're leaving, again, our digital and cultural borders wide open. And now you look at the chaos that's ensuing on the streets uh, of our country and the kind of divisions that, again, were always there, but are being exacerbated to a degree and allows foreign countries to go in and make us hate each other even more. Tristan, my last question for you as we wrap up here quickly, you know, we've seen this before where there have been industries like the tobacco industry comes to mind, others where the government has had to step in in some form to to stop and regulate and make sure that that's not just a straight up manipulation. Is that what's coming here? I mean, when you have movies like The Social Dilemma and others that that it will take the government or it'll take some sort of regulation to say that there needs to be some oversight to what's happening in, in big tech and social media? Yeah, the, the message in the film, and I want to be really clear about what we mean by this, is these companies won't change on their own. And I, I've been working on this topic for eight years, as, you know, nonprofit advocacy uh, orientation. Uh, and we just know that it's only through external pressure, through the will of the people, which is why I think, you know, this film creating that collective will to regulate them is what we ultimately need. Because if Facebook or TikTok disappeared tomorrow, they would be replaced by five other companies who did even more hacking of our social approval and even more micro-targeted advertising. Unless we create guardrails, to say that that's not what we want in our society. And just like in our economic system, a whale is worth more dead than alive, and our tree is worth more as lumber than as a tree, in this system, we are the whale, we are the tree, we are the thing that is being strip-mined for our attention. We're worth more when we're addicted, distracted, outraged, polarized, and disinformed than if we're actually a a thriving citizen in a democracy or a, a growing teenager who's living our lives in a rich way. And so what I really hope is that this film can create the kind of collective will to say, until we change yeah. the regulation of these companies, uh, we're not going to change uh, the, the, what our society looks like when we look yeah. in the mirror. Fascinating conversation. Tristan Harris, uh, co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology, featured in the film The Social Dilemma, which is streaming now on Netflix. Tristan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate you taking some time today. This has been great. Thank you so much, Justin. And that's today's Reset. If you love conversations like this, there's plenty more at your fingertips. Just search the Reset archives at wbez.org slash reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.